visiting here with us today. Special welcome to you. Thanks for coming. You should find a card that in the chair back just in front of you. We would love to know that you're here. If there's anything we can do for you and you would like to let us know anything about yourself or would enjoy us reaching out to you, you can indicate that on the card. And if there's anything we can pray for, you can fill those cards out and drop it in the giving box in the back or give it to one of us after the service. We would just love to know that you were here and be able to thank you for coming. Well, Sergey actually offered a perfect intro to what we want to do this morning in our sermon. We are studying the Gospel of Luke, and our tradition here is to study books of the Bible, so we just go through one text and then the next, and that brings us this morning to Luke chapter 6 and verse 17. And as I was thinking about this and thinking of the section before the calling of the apostles, which we took some time to look at last week, I was thinking, you know, you never really know when your life is going to change, when those moments are going to happen. We've just heard a vivid illustration of that here this morning. We would argue that every verse of the Bible is important. Every verse of the Bible is inspired by God. It's useful. It's profitable for teaching, rebuke, training in righteousness, as the word says. But there's some passages in scripture that I think one author said it's sort of like a heat signature, a thermal image, if you will. And some spots are just a little hotter than others, and they draw our attention. And I think this is one of those places in the Gospel of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, we have four Gospel accounts in the New Testament. These tell us about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Luke is one of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what Luke is doing is he's laying out a case for who Jesus was. Jesus is the Messiah. And this is going to be significant and important as he builds this case and moves forward. And so he's telling us about the man and he's telling us about his mission. So what Luke does here is he tells us about the calling of the first apostles. And this was in verses 12 through 16. We looked at this, this last time, and we don't have time this morning to repeat all of that, but I was really encouraged. A number of you seemed to find it encouraging last week to come to an understanding that it really wasn't the best and the brightest that Jesus chose to use in the first century. And I think that's particularly encouraging for some of us who don't consider ourselves the best and the brightest. In Corinth, Paul wrote back to the Corinthians. Now, I want you to, many of you are probably familiar with this verse, but I want you to try to envision yourself. You're in Corinth, it's the Sabbath day, you're gathered together the first day of the week, and you think, hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. And this is gonna be encouraging, right? And Paul writes this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Like, hey, uh, hey, average people, let me have your attention. And I think this is encouraging because this is how the Lord chooses to operate. So out of his large group of disciples at this point, he selects 12 in particular that are going to be his apostles, his special representatives. If you're involved in college admissions or maybe hiring for jobs, you look for particular qualifications, right? Maybe it's test scores, GPA, extracurricular activities, longevity at a job. Maybe there's some sort of aptitude test. We don't see anything quite like that. It's a group of about half commercial fishermen, my people. There's a crooked accountant in the mix, an IRS guy that probably nobody likes and a political revolutionary. And those are the people that end up changing the world. 
So Jesus doesn't need the best and the brightest. He needs your availability. That's what he really needs. And that's what we see. And that should serve as an encouragement to all of us. So these were the men. These were the ones that Jesus selected out to accomplish his purpose and his work. That's what we see. They're very, very normal people. Now what we're gonna see is the mission that he sends them on. He models this and then the message that he preaches. So let's consider this and look at it today. So what is the mission? I wanna read verses 17 through 19. And then we'll come back in a moment and read 20 through 26. So after he selects this group and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them. Now there's some just really interesting things going on in that verse there, the last one in particular. So let's consider what's going on. What is this mission that he's going to send his people on and what's the mission that he's modeling? This isn't just a transition verse to get us to the next thing. Who is it that's going to accomplish this mission? Of course, Jesus is the one that's doing the mission. He's the one accomplishing the work. But I think he's also modeling something that his disciples are going to do as well. If you have a Bible in front of you, jump over to Luke chapter 10. You're already in Luke chapter six. Go to Luke chapter 10 for a moment. We'll come to this passage in a little while. Luke chapter 10, and I wanna read a couple of verses from there. So Luke chapter 10, verses one and two. He's sending his apostles out in this passage. Verse one says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray, earnestly pray, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then jump down to verse nine. This is the commission. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. There are basically two things that Jesus does here in our passage in Luke chapter six and then two things he sends them out to do later. He models this for them here in chapter six and then he sends them out to go do likewise in chapter 10. What are they to do? They're supposed to preach and heal and this is exactly what Jesus does here. Go back to Luke chapter six. We'll bounce back and forth a couple of times there. There's a few things going on here that are just really interesting. It says that he came down to a level place. Now he was up on a hillside or mountain of some sort, and this may be hard for us to translate in Florida because going to a level place means you walked outside, right? It's all level places. So Jesus found a spot, a suitable spot, where he could sort of stand and deliver a message and just imagine a hillside with a little plateau of some sort that Jesus is standing on, he's delivering this message. And then a couple of things it says here. A great multitude were coming. We're gonna talk about where they were coming from in just a moment. Who came to, one, hear him. So it's the teaching but also to be healed of their diseases. Well, of course you would come if you heard that there was a man that could heal diseases and you were in the area and you had some sort of a disease. But it's not just that. 
and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So demon-possessed people were coming to him and being cured as well. We've seen some previews of this, and it seems to be happening you know, at massive scale now. Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching. And so we see the messianic ministry is beginning to really spin up and take off. There's large groups, a great multitude, it says. Jesus is an attraction. He comes to town and people just come flying out. And in the first century, you could imagine, there's not a ton of competition. It's not like you're going to stay home and you know, binge watch something on Netflix. Like Jesus is in town and so everybody's coming out. This man is amazing. And then we get verse 19. And there's some verses in the Bible that we chalk up to what we would call a mystery. Verse 19 is that for me. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them. Power came out from him. Luke was a physician and he seems to be completely fascinated by the God man. How is it that this man, a, a man, a true man, is also divine in one person? Luke 8:46. he says something similar there. This is a story that we'll get to as well. There's a crowd that's pressing in on Jesus, and Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And they said, well, there's a lot of people around. Those of you maybe that went to the game in Jacksonville yesterday, imagine, you know, you're walking out of Everbank, like doing the, the duck walk, waddling out, and you turn around and say, who touched me? It's like, well, there's 100 people here. Like, who, who didn't touch you? So you're, you're crowded in. Jesus says, no, no, no. I felt something. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. He knew that someone just got healed. And that's, in fact, exactly what happened. It's very, very strange, very interesting for us. So back in Luke 10 again, it says, the 72 returned. He sends them out on this mission saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So he sends them out and they accomplish very similar mission to what he was doing. Let's talk about where this is all taking place and what's the significance of that. The significance, and I think this is probably difficult for us to put our arms around sometimes, just being where we are in the Western world. There was such, a, there was such hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles at that point. We're getting a little bit of a glimpse of this, even watching what's going on in Israel right now. There are groups of people and they just don't get along very well. And this has been going on all the way back since Abraham. So it's doubtful, we're gonna sort it out completely. We of course pray for peace, we pray for a ceasing of war and the loss of human life, but these conflicts are deep-seated, going all the way back, same region. So he says that people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem, these were Jewish areas, and then also from Tyre and Sidon. These are cities that are largely Gentile, so the world really does divide into two categories, Jews and Gentiles, according to this way of thinking. And yet we have Jesus, he's not only healing and preaching to the Jews, he's also bringing healing and hope and preaching to the Gentiles as well. This is a fulfillment of promises made all the way back in Genesis, that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and so we see this playing out. So the Jews and the Gentiles, this is a map of where Tyre and Sidon 
would have been, a couple of significant places. Judea was the area sort of surrounding Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem, of course, the city, and then modern-day Lebanon is where Tyre and Sidon would be. So that's where we are, that's who's accomplishing the work. Let's move on and talk about the message that they're preaching. I wanna read this section, this is verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You may notice that there's a lot of similarity between this passage and the maybe more familiar, more famous Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew. A lot of similarities, but there's some significant differences as well. And there's been a lot of debate around, like, what exactly is this? Is Luke borrowing from something Matthew wrote? Um, are they using a common source? I think there's an easier explanation. Teachers repeat themselves. You ever notice that? Um, if you've been here for a little while, you've heard my jokes, all right? You've heard my illustrations. Teachers repeat themselves, one, because not everybody's here all the time, right? He's in a totally different city, totally different place. Y'all aren't all the same group every week, so I recognize that. So teachers do that, uh, so, and, and they, ju- they feel like they've captured a way to communicate. Well, Jesus was a human teacher, and he's communicating in a way that connects with people, so I think he I think he, used, he preached very similar sermons in different places. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's no like, major conflict here. And so what we have is sort of a truncated version, a shortened version of what we have over in Matthew 5 and 6, but it's true all the same and I think came from, directly from Jesus. So this is what's called the Beatitudes. The, they say, blessed are you. So you'll see that term, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. There's more in Matthew but we have these four here. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Now, blessed is not a word, and the beatitude is not a word that we use all that much, right? We might, we've talked about this a little while back where we talked about the idea of being blessed, uh, what that means. There's a, there is a component of this that means happy, um, I was reading R.C. Sproul on this, and Sproul is always so incredibly quotable, and this made me laugh as he was talking about this. He's talking about this word, blessed are, and some people have moved to translate that as happy. And he says that, that word doesn't quite do it. He says, one of my pet peeves, and Sproul had more than one, if you know Sproul, One of my pet peeves is when modern translators attempt to contemporize the ancient language of scripture by translating it in such a way as to bring it, quote, up to date. And when they come to the Beatitudes, they say, happy are those instead of blessed are those. That is a travesty to the biblical understanding of blessedness. 
In our culture, the word happy has been trivialized as any word can be. And he, he says, happiness is a warm puppy. When we're talking about the Beatitudes pronounced by Almighty God, we're not talking about sentimental feelings that accompany the cuddliness of a warm puppy. So blessedness, happiness, not the same thing. For you dog people out there, that was for you. I'll maintain my non-dog person status, but I try to be all things to all men on occasion. So it's more than just something that makes you happy in the moment, you know, a, a meal or some other comfort. It's really much more than that. It certainly has the idea of happiness built into it, but it has more to do with our understanding of God's awareness and our status before him. That's much more significant than the warm puppy that makes us happy. It's God knows who we are. He knows what we're going through. He knows that we're poor, hungry, weeping, and feel ostracized. He knows this about us. What does that mean for us? It's interesting in today's world and culture, I hear people say, oftentimes actually, they'll hear somebody say something or share something, and they'll say, I feel seen. You guys heard that? You've probably used that. I feel seen. It means somebody gets it. Somebody knows what I'm going through. The idea of blessed actually sort of has a little bit of that concept to it. You are, you are favored and you are seen by God, even though you find yourself in this situation. Now, if I passed out little uh, cards and said, we're gonna have a pop quiz this morning before we get started, I want you to write down four characteristics of the good life, all right? What is, what is the good life? How many of you would have said to be poor, hungry, sad, and outcast? Would anybody have gotten four out of four on that quiz? And yet that's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What in the world is going on here? We wouldn't have gotten this right. So what's happening? Let's dig into this a little bit more. I think most people have an innate sense that there's more to life than just accumulating things and accomplishing things. I think a lot of people feel that deep in their souls. They know that is true. Even people who don't have any recognition that God is real, they don't really have an understanding of what we mean when we say the term gospel, there's this deep sense that there's something else out there I'm missing it. And I think if we're honest, many of us have probably felt that way in life at some point. Run a little test for you. Have you ever had something you really wanted so bad? And you wanted to accomplish something? You wanted to achieve a goal? You wanted to achieve a particular income status? You wanted to receive a particular promotion? Maybe in athletics, a goal that you really wanted to hit to win the state championship, a possession, and then let's just say you did it. What's life like three weeks later? Well, what's the next thing, right? This is how we're wired. And I'm not, I'm not teaching and preaching against accomplishments, the opposite actually. But this is how we're wired to want more and more and more and more. And I would say underneath the right set of value system, <laughs> underneath the right system, uh, that's not negative. What's Jesus getting at here? I think we have to see it in contrast with the woes that he pronounces. 
So these are paired up. You probably noticed that when we read it. So verse 20 is paired up with verse 24. It works something like this. Woe to the poor and then to the rich, the hungry and the full. You weep and you laugh, you're reviled and you're spoken of. Uh, poor of, poorly of. So there's a relationship here between these two, the one who is full and the one who is not. So the poor, I think this has both theological and economic status to it. Matthew's version says the poor in spirit, Luke's version does not. Let's remember who this is addressed to. In verse 20 it says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So he's speaking here particularly to his disciples. Of course, there's application of this to us as well, but he's speaking of the disciples. Blessed are the poor. Now, is there anything inherently beneficial about being poor? All right, think about that. It depends on why you're poor, right? There's four different categories of poor that we can see in the Bible. You see the result of catastrophe. A storm comes in, it wipes out your crops. All of a sudden, you're poor. We see, we see this in financial markets, 2007 and eight happened. We've seen it throughout history. Result of some sort of catastrophe. Could be the result of oppression. James says it's the rich that are dragging you into court and oppressing you. First Kings 21, that's the story of uh, Naboth who, had his, uh, who was the, had his vineyard stolen by Ahab, this wicked king. Could be the result of righteousness though could be the result of righteousness. Those who suffer for the name of Christ, it could be the result of laziness. And these people are rebuked. The result of laziness. Proverbs 10.4 reminds us of this. And then James, also our first, second Thessalonians says, for the one that won't work, don't let him eat. So the context of that is uh, Paul has instructed the people that, hey, in Thessaloniki, hey, Jesus is coming back, good news. And some of them said, oh, cool. That means I'm not gonna plant my crop, I'm gonna run up the credit cards, and I'm just gonna live the life for the next little bit because Jesus is coming back. And Paul says, no, 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 you've completely misunderstood. For the one who won't work, he shouldn't eat. Don't let them get away with that. So just being poor is not the issue. Now, if it was just being poor, it's easy to become poor, right? Everybody in here could probably do that by the end of the day if you really wanted to. You know how you, as a fisherman, do you know how you become a millionaire as a fisherman? You start out as a billionaire and then you'll become a millionaire eventually. <laughs> it's, it's really not hard. Make some terrible investments, Post your, I'll give, you, I'll give you tips for becoming poor. Make some terrible investments. Post your username and your password to your bank account on a social media site. You'll be poor by the end of the day, promise. Leave your keys in the car, park it on a busy street, put a sign up says unlocked, and then all your stuff gets taken, your car gets stolen, and you say, oh good, now I'm blessed. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Is it strictly an economic status that he's getting at? No, that's obviously not the case. He's saying for you, the followers of Jesus, who've given up everything, who've given up your livelihood to come and to follow me, you're blessed. 
you may not realize it right now, but what you're doing is far more important. It's far more valuable in God's economy. You're blessed. And notice what they're blessed with. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is a kingdom that's an upside down type of kingdom. It's a kingdom that's not about status and lineage like the Jews wanted or about power and coercion like the Romans loved. It's a kingdom that's different. The word kingdom is used 126 times in the Gospels, only 34 times after that, but it is interesting. In the simplest way, we could just say the kingdom refers to the reign of God, where God and his rules reign. There's a lot of different components to this. Just a few observations about the kingdom. One is this, not everyone is in the kingdom. And Jesus makes this distinction throughout his ministry. In Mark 12, 34, it's, he makes an interesting statement. He says, you are close to the kingdom. You're not in yet, but you're close. You're asking the right questions. So how do you, do you get in? You get in by the new birth. This is Jesus' instructions to Nicodemus. You have to be born again. You have to confess your sins to Jesus. You have to recognize that he is the great savior. He lived a perfect life. You're a sinner. I come to him. I commit my life completely and totally to him. And then you enter the kingdom through God's work. And then we also know that it's an upside down kingdom, meaning that it's a kingdom where the first are last, the last are first. Matthew 18, four says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the scribes and Pharisees didn't know what to do with that. Take one of these little kids and put him on your lap, says this is like the kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. It's not a top down type of kingdom. So this is the kingdom that we are striving for and after. I wanna bring a couple of things out in this as we talk about what it means to be poor. You know, the Bible has a lot of teaching actually about wealth and poverty and things like that. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's interesting here that Paul, many years later, he's coming behind Jesus' teaching and furthering that ministry. And he says, for you that are rich in this world, don't set your hope on your riches, but be rich in good deeds. They are to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous, ready to share. If the Lord has provided for you, then you should be eager and anxious to share with others. What does that do? Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This scores perfectly with what Jesus is saying here. Those who are poor inherit the kingdom. It's not about what you have. It's about who he is. So the blessed one, the poor, the hungry. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The issue has to do with those who are in serious lack or need. We heard just a moment ago about some people in Ukraine who were truly, actually hungry. I think when many of us say we're hungry, it just means it's that long stretch of time between lunch and dinner. And hunger, hunger though, speaking in, in these terms, you're talking about people who are really starving. They're hungry. They don't have the abundance. 
And Jesus says, blessed are you. In good standing are you. Luke highlights this issue of eating and banquets and feasts and festivals a number of times. There's 10 meal scenes in Luke. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Jesus is always eating with people. He's always hanging out and eating. We're gonna have a potluck right after church here. We're gonna, we're gonna feast, and it's good. It's good that we can do that. It's a lot of this. Blessed are you. Verse 25, the contrast. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So the hungry are blessed. Next, the sad. Verse 21. Second half, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. There's gonna be, be a day, and obviously just like talking about the poor and just like talking about hungry, it's not a virtue necessarily to be sad. That's not necessarily the virtue. He's saying, I see you in your condition, and I want to encourage you. We studied Ecclesiastes a few years ago. This verse, I think about it often. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. All right, so what should I do when I have a really good day? What should I do at church potluck? You should eat and enjoy. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. You pass the test, you got the raise, you got the job, whatever it is, be joyful. It's a good day. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It may not last. You will have your days of sadness. But take heart. God knows. He sees those who have left everything to follow Christ, they aren't abandoned. The contrast, verse 25, second half, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And lastly, let's look at the outcast, those who are pushed aside from society. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, there's four different words here used to describe this. This is interesting because the others were so short. Let's make sure that when we're talking about being outcast, being pushed aside, being hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned, let's make sure that we're talking about what he's talking about on account of the Son of Man, all right? Just imagine a scenario here. If one of you said, oh, it's potluck today. We have a chili cook-off today. He said, oh, I'm gonna run down to Publix and get some fried chicken to bring to the potluck. And so you leave right after the service. I'm not trying to drop any hints or anything. Just take it for what it's worth. And you walk into Publix and you go and you grab some fried chicken and you look around, you think nobody's watching and you make a break for it to your car, all right? And you get caught and they say, what are you doing? You say, I know why you're doing this to me because I'm a Christian. It's like, no, you stole chicken. Like, that's why you're in trouble. Like, let's just be clear on what's going on here. It's not because of that. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 2. He says, all suffering isn't necessarily good, especially if you've done something really dumb to deserve it. For what credit is it if when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure it? It's like, hey, you know, do the, do the crime, you do the time. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's just make sure that we're talking about suffering on account of the Son of God, not just suffering in general. 
That's not what he's speaking about. He offers a warning in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Be careful. Be careful when everybody says you're, you're awesome. Be careful. Now, this should not make us want to be adversarial and think, oh, well, you know, woe to me if everybody's saying good things about me. I think I need to cause a little strife to make sure I'm a true child of God. That's not the issue. The issue is when you're standing your ground and you're speaking biblical principles, when you're staying true to the gospel, when you're holding the line, if persecution, if you get some sort of revile and hatred, if people exclude you and push you out of the social club because of that, blessed are you. It's a badge of honor in the economy of God in Christ. That's the one that's truly blessed, not the one that has everything, not the one that has all the popularity. What can we do with this? A few points and then I'll pray for us. Number one, I would encourage us to do this. Consider your citizenship. Jesus is talking about a kingdom here. He says, blessed are the poor, yours is this kingdom. And as I mentioned, kingdom is often mentioned. Our true citizenship is not in a particular country, but it's in heaven with God. Are you a citizen of that kingdom? By the new birth, that's the only way in. Next, prioritize the eternal over the temporal. I'm again not making a case for not accomplishing things in your life, I think you should. But are we putting all our stock? Are we finding our meaning, satisfaction, purpose, belonging in things that could be taken away? And then I think related to that, we need to reconsider what the good life is. Given the pop quiz that we all would have failed a little while ago, I think we need to consider this based on biblical priorities. What is Jesus getting at? Well, he's getting at there's a kingdom that's much, much bigger, that's much, much more profound, that's much deeper than what we see around us in the everyday life. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for your word and we're thankful for this passage of scripture that reminds us that the upside down nature of the kingdom, blessed are those who are poor, we wouldn't have picked that, or hungry, or outcast. Lord, we are reminded that your priorities seem different sometimes from ours. Lord, we are grateful that you do see us, you do know what we're going through. Lord, and there's no situation on this earth that's beyond your understanding. And so we put our trust and we pray that you would give us wisdom as we think through these and think through how to apply these things to our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.